This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Canon Stephen Gautier. When I was a kid, one of the central facts of our life was the Second World War, which had just ended. And everybody's dad had been in the war. You'd ask questions, Europe or the Pacific, that type of thing. And so I had a very lively interest in the Second World War. So in 1969, when Thames Television in England commissioned a 26-episode series that was supposed to be the definitive documentary in the Second World War, I was thrilled. And it came out in 1973 and 74, called The World at War. And it was released to critical acclaim. It was the most expensive factual series ever made until that time. Now, one of the goals of this series was it was now, again, the war had been over, uh, had been over, you know, uh, basically 30 years. People were dying. They wanted to make sure to have interviews and things with people while they were still there to interview. And so it features hundreds of interviews with people in those hours. And I've watched it, of course, in the last 40 years. You have DVDs and they've watched it a few times. I know the series. But there's one clip, one very short interview clip that's always stayed with me in a special way. It's in passing, but it really hit me. And what it was, it was a German they described her as a housewife. And she describes the fact that how did she become part of the resistance? She actually became part of a very small group, the German resistance, but she was very much part of that. How did it happen? And she explained that one day, someone knocked at her door. It was an evening. She went to the door, and it was a Jewish couple that was desperate. They had nowhere to go. She didn't know them, had never met them, had no clue who they were. She said years later, she tried to figure out who would have sent them. I loved her comment. She said, decent people, I'm sure. But suddenly, she was confronted with a monumental choice. They were at her door. She didn't choose the moment. There it was. People who needed help were at her door. What would she do? And there was great risk. Nazi Germany was not a place that one took these things casually. She could be arrested. Her family could be arrested, imprisoned, or worse. What would she do? She could do what millions of her countrymen do and turn her back, or maybe even worse. But what she did is a beautiful thing. She opened the door and let them in. It was the beginning of her work with the resistance. That was really what we call a defining moment. That moment, do I open the door or not, was a defining moment, which changed who she was by the answer she gave to that question. Thank God she gave the right answer. You know, Churchill described what happened with the Nazi, the Nazi era. He said the lights went out over Europe, decency and honor, and one woman turned on a light. It was a beautiful thing. It was a defining moment. Well, the Bible is filled with defining moments like this. If you look on our sermon page, Abraham is a classic example of a defining moment. Now, Abram already had a relationship with God. Abram was called when he's an old man and settled down, I really sympathize with this, to uproot himself and just go to another place that God would show him. That's not something you do casually at the end, end of your life. But in life, he did. He obeyed. He went. Then God told him, incredibly, I'm going to give you a son who was much too old for him or for Sarah, but he believed God, and we're told famously, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So there was a real relationship with Abram and God. But there's still something missing. There's still the question remained. Abraham was good, but was he really in it 100%? God had to know. And this leads to what we call the binding of Isaac. God says to Abraham, take the son, the one you love, the one you waited all those years for, and offer him as a sacrifice. It was incredible. This is 
And what happens is Abraham actually prepared to do just that. He prepared to offer his son as a sacrifice. And look at the passage we have in the bulletin there. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel, God's not going to let that happen. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy or do him anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Now I know. Know in Hebrew is an extremely powerful verb, much more than we have in English. God knew, but something, something had changed. Abraham's decision changed something. It was a defining moment. Abraham was different from that moment. Now I know. Now today we encounter a similar defining moment in the life of Jesus. And we have to remember, remember our series on the Incarnation, is we reminded that Jesus is truly the eternally begotten Word of God, but He also truly assumed our humanity. He was a real flesh and blood human being who knew what temptation was. He wasn't going through the motions. He was tempted. So we encounter Jesus at a defining moment. And our questions say three questions. First of all, how exactly was the temptation of Jesus a defining moment? Second question, is there a lesson we can learn for our own lives from that? And third, let's talk about temptation. You know, a lot of things when you preach, you say, well, there's an important topic, but some people here will really be affected, but other people it really isn't that big in their lives perhaps now. Maybe they'll store it away for another time. But when you preach about something like temptation, you know every last person talking to you knows what you're talking about. You don't have to explain what it is. Everyone knows what temptation is. So the question here, our third question, is how do we in our daily lives deal with the daily challenge of temptation? What do we do with that fact? So start with our first question. How was the temptation of Jesus a defining moment? And to understand that, we have to look at two things. Let's get a little bit of background. Let's look back in the Hebrew Bible, the two incidents in the Hebrew Bible. And then also, you know, Mark is very, very concise. Let's look at, you know, Matthew and Luke provide us more detail on the temptation. So let's look at a little bit of the detail that they provide, and they will help us understand something incredible that's going on at the temptation of Jesus in the desert. So first of all, let's look at Adam. If I had to describe a spoiled child, it would be Adam. I mean, come on already. I mean, Adam is created out of nothing. He's given everything you could want. He's given this incredible garden. He's a co-worker with God, and he's even given dominion over everything. What more can you want? Well, in this situation, he encounters Satan. And what is Satan's temptation? It's amazing. You know what Satan does? Listen to this. This, I can't make it up. He offers him a better deal. He says, God's holding out on you. He offers him a better deal. He says, you can be like God yourself. You don't have to just work here. You can be like God yourself. So he had to choose. He could trust God who had given him every reason to trust him. God had done nothing but good for him. Or he could trust Satan. And sadly, as we know, the story of the rest of humanity is Adam made the wrong choice. He trusted Satan. He distrusted God. And the second is we can do that's in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. The very next book, the book of Exodus, we have the children of Israel, the Israelites. And we talk at the Exodus, again, talk about being showered with love. God has never, we're told in the Scriptures, done this with anybody else, any other people. He took them out of this bondage, personally takes them out and liberates them from one of the great world powers. They were nothing. He defeats a world power to liberate them. He opens the sea. He closes it up. What more could you want? 
And then they hit the first bump in the road. They're in the desert and there's no bread. So the question then becomes, in this bump in the road, there's a choice. They had every reason to trust God. He had done everything. Why would this be different? They could trust that God must have a better plan, or they could grumble up and give up on God. Sadly, we know the answer. They grumbled and gave up on God. So whether it was Adam failed, Adam met Satan, he failed. The children of Israel in the desert faced the challenge of hunger, they fail. Jesus puts himself in exactly the same position as Adam and in exactly the same position as Israel. Think about it. First of all, Jesus, like Adam and the Israelites, talk about showered with love. That's why we have the passage right as part of our passage today. We talk about Jesus' baptism. It doesn't get better. Talk about mountaintop experiences. Maybe not if he's in a river. Okay, but work with me. Okay, but the idea is he's baptized, and not like everybody else, he has a voice. The Father says, this is the Son I love. It just doesn't get better. Okay, so he has this one like Adam and the Israelites. God has done, worked dramatically with him. But what happens here, he's now, uh, what happened, he now like Adam, is confronted with Satan. And guess what? Satan offers him a better deal. Listen, what did Satan say to him? The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Satan offers him a better deal. But Adam, unlike Adam, the answer for Jesus is he turns down the offer and he chooses God. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus succeeds where Adam had failed. And what about Israel? Like Israelites, Jesus is confronted with real, not metaphorical, real hunger. It says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But unlike the Israelites, Jesus actually trusted that God had a better plan. Listen to how he answered. He said, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus succeeds where Israel had failed. So the temptation of Jesus was a defining moment. It's an example of something that the first church theologian called Irenaeus in the second century called, he called recapitulation. It basically means God goes into all those places where we messed up and straightens things out. It's like a divine redo. He goes in and redoes what we messed up. He straightens out. Adam said no to God. Jesus says yes when he confronts Satan. Israel had said no to God and grumbled. Jesus said, yes, you must have something better. So this is a defining moment. But yet, having said that, if you're like me, there's something, they say, well, there's something wrong with the story. Somehow it bothers me. What's wrong with the story? Well, let's look at what Mark says carefully. How did Jesus get into the desert where this happened? Well, we're told in Mark, that the Spirit, that means God Himself, the Spirit immediately drove Him out into the wilderness. Matthew's version is even clearer. Matthew says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Did I hear that right? God actually put Jesus in harm's way? Is that what's going on here? Why would God do that? And James tells us, the Apostle James, he says that uh, God doesn't tempt anyone. He said God himself tempts no one. What's going on? 
Those are good questions to ask. What's going on? Why would God lead him to this place? A very important reason, key to understanding the passage. You see, a test is not the same thing as a temptation. Think about it. Think about tests. Like if you want to be a physician, you have to go through, uh, you have to go through your, your medical boards. If you want to be a, uh, an attorney, you have to pass the bar examination, the CPA, you take the CPA examination. But the thing about the tough, tough exams, but you know something? Everything's designed for you to succeed. All of your training, all your teachers have been working hard and they want you to succeed. It's a step forward in your career. It's a chance to demonstrate you're ready to practice. You're ready to be a doctor. You're ready to be an attorney. It's everything is moving you. It's a step forward. Everything is planned for success. A temptation is the exact opposite. A temptation is like a sting operation with the police for drug, uh, drug dealers. It's designed for you to mess up. It's designed to catch you and arrest you. It's designed for failure. So what happens here, which is amazing, with the temptation of Jesus is Satan is tempting Jesus. He's setting Jesus up for failure. But what is God doing? God is setting Jesus up for success. You see, God has this ability to turn temptations into tests. It's incredible. He can turn a temptation into, this, you know, this, Satan means it for evil. God means it for good. Remember Joseph and his brothers in Egypt? Joseph had actually been sold by his brothers. And later on he says to them, he said, I know you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's because of what you did that everyone's alive today. That's, I needed to be here. It doesn't change the fact what you did was evil, but God has this incredibility, incredible ability to change evil and use it for good. Think of it this way. The enemy, typically what he does, he takes the beautiful things God has made and twists them, right, and tries to apply them to evil purposes. God can do the exact opposite. He can, take all, he can take evil things and turn them around on themselves and use them for good. If you need a reminder of that, look at the cross. You understand the people who crucified Jesus weren't trying to save the world. They were mean, vicious people. They were, they were killing and they were torturing him. I mean, come on, how bad does it get? They put, they put vinegar on a stick because they think it would be funny to see a dying guy make funny faces. They were not trying to do something good. But despite that, God took the supreme evil and turned it to the supreme moment of good. God has an ability to take evil and use it for good. And that's exactly, so the cruc crucifixion of death, God uses death to destroy death. So what's a lesson for us? We said our second question, what's the lesson for us? I'll tell you a story about my dad. I told you about the first, Second World War is, is, you know, people in that time when I was a kid, they were always would have stories about being in the army and things. But the stories were always about stuff no one cared about. I mean, they, they, they thought they were funny stories and things. And the really neat stuff they never talked about. And I remember once as a kid foolishly asking my dad a serious question about the war. And I said, Dad, I still remember it. It wasn't typical. I said, Dad, were you ever afraid? And his response, I'll never forget, said, of course I was afraid. I wasn't stupid. People were trying to kill us. But then he went on to say, but we did the right thing anyway. He explained, courage doesn't mean not being afraid. Courage means doing the right thing when you are afraid. Put it this way, courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is what we do when we are afraid. That was a valuable lesson. And it seems to me the same thing is true about temptation. Temptation isn't sin. But basically, obedience, you know, if there's no obedience and we're just doing what we want to do anyway. It's exactly when we don't want to do something. 
that we know that we have a choice. Suddenly, it's the same thing. You know, obedience isn't what we do when we feel like it. Obedience is precisely what we do when we don't feel like it. That's the moment. Of, that's what obedience is. So the temptation is that that's an opportunity for obedience. Temptation isn't sin. It's an opportunity for the opposite. Now, we said that we wanted to. Uh, to talk about the daily challenge of temptation, our third question. And I want to say there are four fundamental truths that can really help us with temptation. So let's look at each of four fundamental truths about dealing with the reality of temptation in our life. So what's the first one? Well, the first, uh, the first temp uh, thing is we should never put God to the test. You know, we pray the Lord's Prayer for us every day, and one of our petitions is, lead us not into temptation. So it's true that God can take temptation and turn it into a test, but that's because we happen to be there. We don't go looking for it. Remember like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, don't worry about tomorrow. You have plenty to worry about today. You're sufficient for the day or the day's troubles. We don't have to look for tests. There are plenty of real tests in our life. So the first thing is we don't look for trouble. And this means we have a duty to avoid what we call the occasions of sin. We all know what they are. In our life, there are things that of themselves aren't sinful, but we always know once we start down the path, it's going to get there. You know what it's sort of like? A lot of people really find Thanksgiving a a, 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 an emotionally troubling time sometimes. Why? Because families will have these discussions. We all have it like this. There will be, if somebody mentions something, a certain word, there are buzzwords. You mention it to Uncle Theo when he's off to the races. You know, he goes crazy, that kind of thing. We know, even though it's not wrong to say it, we know what's going to happen. It's predictable. It's like the sun rising in the east. So what we have to say here is, look, we all know in our lives there are certain things we do that, yeah, it's innocent, but every time I've gone down this path, you know, I know what happens. So we have a duty to avoid the occasions of sin. The second thing is we have to understand that what we're up against and act accordingly. Remember, James emphasized to us when he talks about the theology of temptation that God doesn't tempt anyone. God never does evil. He can use evil despite itself, but God never tempts anyone. And James says, what's the source of our temptation? He says, that the, uh, he says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Our own disordered affections is what tempt us. But that's not the end of the story. It would be bad enough if that were all there was. But we actually have an enemy. This is very real. This is very real. We have an enemy, and the enemy uses those desires against us. He knows our weak spots, and he's pressing all the buttons. Now, this is why Paul says, he says, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. This is Ephesians 6, 12. Uh, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is serious stuff. And so what we're saying is the last thing we want to go to is willpower. That's crazy. It's not a matter, overcoming temptation is not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of God. It's a matter of grace. It's like if you've ever learned CPR, a lot of us have had to learn CPR. And what's the first thing they tell you in CPR training? Is we're going to train you, but the first thing when somebody has a cardiac episode is you shout out, hey, somebody, who's calling 911? Right, you need real help coming. This is just, CPR is just a way to stay, to keep someone alive until help gets there. Temptation isn't a matter, I'll just take care of this. The first thing you do is the, our version of calling 911, we call in grace. And if we don't, this is incredible. I'll use an example. When I was a kid, I remember in grade school that we were going through the Cuban Missile Crisis, 
And it's hard for you, oh, so many people are so young here, to understand there was a time when nuclear war was a real possibility. It wasn't unthinkable. After all, it wasn't long before that they, in Japan, two cities had been nuked. You know, hundreds of thousands of people had died. It's already happened, and people were talking there might be a nuclear war. So I remember in school we had drills, what do you do if we're bombed, if we have a nuclear explosion? And I'll never forget the answer. The answer is this. If you haven't been there, you have to, you've got to trust me on this. Imagine this is my school desk. Well, what you do if you're about to have a nuclear bomb dropped on you is you go under your desk and put your hands over your head. It was called dunk and cover. I don't know about you, I was never the science guy, but even I knew this is not a plan. <laughs> this is not a plan. And so when we're talking about the forces, that says spiritual forces of wickedness, the idea that I'll just handle this is crazy talk. You know, we need, to be, we need to be turning to God. And here's the wonderful thing. Remember, we, the bishop is, you know, and, 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 and uh, Father Brett and Deacon Matt have a wonderful series on the Word of God, the Bible. You can trust what God promises. God keeps His promises. Look what He tells us about temptation. He says, no, this is from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has ever overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you te be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's God's promise. He doesn't say sometimes. He says always, you know, that we can count on this. So the first thing to remember in temptation is don't go alone. It's not a matter of, you know, of, 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 uh, of willpower. It's a matter of seeking God's power. Call 911. You call in God. And actually, our weakness can be a strength. That's some sort of, uh, might be counterintuitive, but it actually can be a strength. Here's why. I remember back in Boy Scouts, they told us, imagine a boating accident out of Lake Michigan. You're two miles from shore, and the boat capsizes. What do you do? And they meant to make it dramatic, so they told us, actually, a person who might be most at risk is someone who's a good swimmer. Now, help me out on that. How would being a good swimmer put you more at risk in a boating accident? Well, it's just like this is if you're not a good swimmer, you realize the last thing you're going to try to do is swim two miles to shore. So you wisely stay right with the boat, hanging on to it, floating, and waiting for help to come. That's the smart thing. But a really good swimmer says, I can do that, <laughs> and starts going, and they get under an undertow or something, and they can die. Knowing your weakness can stop you from trying to go on your own. And this is what God says to Paul once. Paul complained about temptation. He said he had a thorn in the flesh. He said, three times I besought God, do something about this. And what was God's reply to him? He says specifically to Paul, he said, my grace is enough for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So knowing our weakness shouldn't discourage us. It's an encouragement. We know, yeah, I can't do it, but help is on the way. I'm hanging on to the boat and help is on the way. That's the safe way to go. The third thing we need to have when we deal with temptation is understand that there will never be closure. Temptation isn't something, you know, you know that, that we get past and that's the end of it. It's the story of our life. It'll always be the story. For those of us who are, are old, let me tell you, almost everybody who's older has some chronic problem that requires medications. And the fact is, sometimes when you first get on these meds, there, there are side effects and things, and the doctor will simply say, look, it's never going away. Don't fool yourself. This is magical thinking. You always are going to need the medication. Good news is they'll take care of everything, but you've got to take your medications. So the same thing is, we have to understand that we're always going to have the temptation problem. There's no shame in that. 
Bishop Stewart a year ago had a wonderful series called Not Being Ashamed to Need Jesus. There's no shame in the fact that we're never going to get… Temptation will never be in the rearview mirror. We're always, temptation will always be part of our life. That's fine. It's controllable. You know, like we have a medication, we basically will… God will give us the grace and we'll, and we'll truck through. And there's actually a special blessing. Why would God do that? Well, one of the reasons, I think, is this. There's a blessing that we never get past temptation. If we did, we'd become like the Pharisees. We'd start thinking, you know, if people just tried harder, they'd be as good as our, us. Is it always reminds us it's not about us. It, that's what real compassion is. We'd really understand we're all in the same boat here. So instead of looking down at others as miserable sinners, we say, ah, that's me. Might manifest differently, but it's me. Okay. Now, the last thing, the fourth uh, point, the fourth truth is this is perhaps the most important, never to confuse temptation with sin. I'll tell you why that's important. Temptation is not sin. So for example, then temptation, if somebody does something really uh, wrong, it's only a natural human reaction to get initially angry. The temptation to anger is just a temptation. It's not sinful. It's natural. When somebody does something outrageous, it's, there's nothing wrong with the temptation to anger. It's what do we do with it. I put it this way. Temptation is like this. You can't help if somebody rings your doorbell, but you don't have to open the door. And so the point is, you know, when Jesus says, for example, anyone who's angry with his brother in his heart, he's not meaning to say that you didn't feel the temptation of anger. He's saying, what do we choose to do with that temptation? Do we nourish it? Yes, look at what they did to me. You know, or do we simply, uh, I'm out of here. I forgive. Like Father Brett in the sermon, we just say, hey, forgiveness is something we choose with, with Ash Wednesday. Okay, so, and why is this so important? Because one of the ways the enemy often wins us over is this. When we feel temptation, he tells us we've already sinned. And why is that important? Well, then we give up. We say, ah, I've already, the damage is done. Let's go for it. I feel that instinct I want to be angry. Therefore, it must mean I've already committed the sin. What's to lose now? And we go for broke. Lust, fill in the blank what they are. Is, I, I guess I've already sinned. You know, the diet, no, it isn't. So we have to understand when he tells us that lie, gee, you've already sinned. Look, the very fact you're tempted, we say, that's not so. Because we're told in the Scriptures, which never lie, that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, but did not sin. Temptation is not sin. Okay, in conclusion, let me say, I think every one of us, if we really think about it, we talked about defining moments. Remember that, that, that wonderful German woman had these people arrive on her door? She didn't choose that moment. It was there. That was the moment, yes or no. Every one of us today has a defining moment in our life if we have eyes to look at it. Right now, today, we have there's something in our life, there's a defining moment. Maybe it's something about how we spend our money in our life, how we handle anger, how we respond to someone's need. There's all sorts of things, but it's there somewhere. There's some decision in practical terms. I didn't choose this. It's just happened to me. What am I going to do? Am I going to close the door? Am I going to open it? What am I going to do? The good news of this gospel is that through Jesus, the defining moments have been transformed. You know, temptation actually, thanks to Jesus, now can be an opportunity to say yes to God. Instead of a no, it's an opportunity to say yes. And again, remember, this is a test. It's not a sting operation. God does everything to make this successful. He wants victory. He gives us everything we need. Remember, there's something in the Scriptures, a big theory in the New Testament is everything Jesus touches changes. When Jesus touches a leper, instead of Jesus becoming unclean, what happens? The leper becomes clean. When Jesus dies on a cross, instead of the cross being an implement of death, it becomes an implement of life. Everything He touches is different. 
So what's the good news of the gospel today? Jesus himself touched temptation. That's why it's no longer a failure, but it's a test that can lead us to God. So let's pray this Lent that God will change the water of temptation into the wine of faithfulness so that God can say of us, as he said of Abraham, now I know. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.